I got friends only wanna talk business. I got expensive, cause when it's expensive. I got expensive, cause when it's expensive. I've been getting out of work. And welcome to another episode of Put That Coffee Down, the Freight Sales Show for Closers. And we have a, a great episode for you today. It's as bright and sunny. Everyone is enjoying, I'm sure, their Monday because everywhere everyone enjoys Monday. I'm your host, Kevin Hill, here with my special co-host today, Rishi Daigle from Sonar. How are you doing today, Rishi? Doing well, doing well. I saw one of these uh, um, uh, memes or whatever the pictures with words on them and everything. Uh, and it was showing the <laughs> the the, uh, the the vessel that stuck in the Suez Canal, the, the Evergreen, the Evergiven, and, and, and you know it had Monday Monday schedule on on the vessel, and then the itty bitty <laughs> excavator that was digging it out was like Monday morning coffee. You know, <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. It got laughs out of me today, so. Yeah. I know, right? So uh, the, the good news is that the Ever Given is floating again. And I don't know exactly. I haven't caught up with it the last two or three hours, but it's floating. It's unstuck. Hopefully it's traveling through the Suez Canal right now. Yeah, I mean, last I saw it's floating, but I don't know if it's it's out of the way yet. I think they're still trying to get it on, you know, get get it get to it unstuck. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, just get it unstuck. Yeah. Just get it out. Just get it moving. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's really disruptive trade networks all over the place, and it was really hyped, just like everything else uh, that gets hyped. You know, you you think is it going to be stuck for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks? So it's a good good thing that it's unstuck now. Hopefully, it'll be moving soon. Hopefully, uh, you know the the, the trade routes will. But we'll get back to normal, and we won't have a container getting number three on our shores. Yeah, we don't we don't need any other uh, you know crowbars thrown into the the works of uh, international trade. I, I think that everyone should get a nice sigh of relief once it's it's moved, and, and we can resume back to the normal levels of chaos. <laughs> a normal level, uh, normal levels. That's, that's definitely true. Uh, there, Richie, the normal level. of chaos right now and if you're selling 3pl if you're selling services uh, especially on the international side i imagine you probably had that pretty hectic what couple that you know since late last week right a, a few days of uh, pretty hectic trying to find out uh how delayed your, your cargo is going to be coming in communicating that with your customers uh contacting the, the carriers and the shipping lines and just trying to get all that piece back together so uh, kudos to, to everyone out there who uh, is has been dealing with this over the last few days because it is uh, it's one of those events that uh, make freight sales very interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I guess you know my thought on that is so much of sales is setting expectations, managing expectations, and managing and setting correct expectations can be incredibly challenging when there is so much uncertainty in the air. <laughs> and uh, you know, if, if you're not hearing clear signals from uh, the people that you depend on and getting accurate dates set and so forth, then, you know, communications with your client base can be challenging. And uh, so ho hopefully at least a little bit more certainty will come into the air with, with uh, things getting back into motion. And, and yeah, yeah, hopefully that'll be helpful. You, you know what else gives it gives really good certainty is, is data and science and, and proven methods that, it, that are verified by 
repeatable experiments through time. And that's what we have today, Richie. We have David Hopfield, who is the author of The Science of Selling, Proven Strategies to Make Your Pitch, Influence Decisions, and Close the Deal. It's a fascinating book. We've both been reading it over the, over the weekend. And uh, there's a lot to unpack. And I, I can't wait for David to come on the show here in, in a few minutes to, to start unpacking that and, and start, you know, really, really seeing where this is taking us and all of the, the different experiments and scientific background and research in social psychology and sociology and behavior that uh, he put into this. And it really is fascinating. Um but before we do that, uh, let's thank our sponsor, Zimbles. You want to crush your numbers? You want to stop random prospecting? Zimbles can tell you who is spending on shipping and get you those leads instantly, taking your sales process from a 95% failure rate to a 50% success rate. Go to start.zimbles.com slash free trial and sign up for a demo today. Once again, that's start.zimbles.com slash free trial. And uh, that's a little bit of science there that Zimbles brings. Uh, good quantitative data on on shipping and trucking, uh, whether it's full truckload, LTL, spend for prospects that, to help you qualify. And you know about qualifying prospects. Richie, why don't you uh, give our audience a little bit of background on what you do there at Sonar? Yes, I'm a, a Sonar uh, Enterprise Account Executive. And I work with companies of all shapes and sizes, from you know shippers to carriers to 3PLs, 4PLs, et cetera. Uh, and, and understanding how to leverage real-time data and, and, and use that uh, to, to better their overall operations and performance. Um, so you know, by having insight and visibility into what the market is doing today, and then you know, having insight and access to, to forecasted market conditions, you're more informed, and if you're more informed, you can make decisions that are going to lead to, uh, uh, you know, better probabilities for your organization, and, and uh, that's that's what it's all about. So I love seeing seeing companies uh, leverage Sonar in a way that that helps them grow and expand and and uh, get better. So um, yeah, and it kind of leads into everything. Uh, you know, Kevin, it's it's all about bettering your probabilities, and and that's what sales and, and even business to a certain extent is all about is knowing your odds and, and what can we do to make our odds better? You know, how, how can we uh, make decisions that put us into a better environment and a better situation where we're more likely to be successful? Uh, and if you do that in a lot of different places over a lot of different uh, decisions, then the, the numbers bear, bear fruit. And um, looking forward to this conversation today uh, to get into the, the science of selling as well and how, how we can utilize some of these techniques to, to better overall probabilities. Yeah, it's, it's all about probabilities, and it's about uh, having a, a process in place that is designed to, to heighten all those probabilities all across the, the board, and that's what the, the science of selling is all about. So I'm excited to, uh, to to get into it as well. And one of the, the first things, and we'll talk about it before David comes on, uh, one of the first things that, that really jumped out at, at both of us, and it was in the, the beginning of the book, it is all about mindset. and how mindset of any individual has a lot to do with their success or failure. So there's there's two types of mindsets, right? You have the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. So take a stab at the, the fixed mindset and kind of unpack that a little bit, Richie. 
Yeah, it's uh, the fixed mindset is it, you know you're talking to somebody or, or you're hearing messaging from a fixed mindset when somebody presents it as this is the end all be all solution for whatever it is forever and ever amen or this is the answer to a question forever and ever amen um, and then they defend that and they are everything is def is of a defensive nature so it's somebody who determines or at least my understanding is you know a fixed mindset is one that. Uh, just posits that it is correct about this issue, and it's going to defend that position to the nail. Because if this isn't correct, then it's incorrect, and that's a problem. So it's viewing everything as either being 100% correct, or 100% not correct. It's very dualistic and uh, in nature, and, um, and it's fixed, right? It's it's inflexible and it's unwilling to to progress or evolve. It's not open to evolution in that regard. Uh, so that that would be my understanding of that that fixed mindset. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes, yeah, yeah. So so you're exactly right. You can put that to a person too, right? I, this is who I am. These are my talents. These are my skills, and and I am who I am, right? Hundred percent. I, I don't have a natural ability to do this. There's no reason to practice. Um, and that is part of it too. It reminds me a little bit of uh, well, it's it's not his quote, but have you have you watched Ted Lasso yet? Not yet. Not yet. I you need should. To. I, I know. It's I'm... one of the, the best new shows. It really <laughs> is. You know, he's he's a uh, he's Wichita State football coach, goes to London to uh, coach a Premier League that is, is basically he's he's there for them to fail, right? But he's, he's kind of a, a cornball, uh, kind of goofy guy. Uh, but, but he has, uh, he mentions Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman, and, and one of his famous quotes in in this this little uh, uh, you know pep, pep talk, and it's it's be curious, not judgmental, right? So a fixed mindset, you're you're, you're very judgmental uh, about yourself and, and the world itself, and I, I think with the growth mindset, you're very curious. So you're always opening to learn more. You're you're always opening to do more, to learn more, to train more. To, uh, to 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 be the best that, that that you really can be, and it takes a lot of uh, curiosity, a lot of intellectual curiosity, to uh, to drive you forward. Hundred percent. I think the growth mindset as well has a lot of humility, and also mm -hmm. the 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 gumption or the the internal fortitude to not be so scared of failure, to charge into yeah. something and say I might be completely wrong, and if I am completely wrong, that's fine. Like I'm going to learn that what I'm going to learn from being completely wrong is going to be so valuable and that's going to advance mm -hmm. my knowledge and allow me to better understand this situation as a whole. And so it's, it's this humble, eternal optimism that sees the good and, and failing as well as succeeding with any endeavor. Um, and that's much more aimed at kind of evolving, constantly evolving and growing and learning and, and, you know, never really arriving at success, but constantly getting better. It, it, it is, you know, failure is just a, a learning. It, it's just a, a lesson learned, you know, uh, on a fixed mindset, failure is, is thought of a very negatively. It's something to be avoided at all costs, where with the growth mindset, it's something to be embraced, to, to go out and enthusiastically uh, fail so you can learn more. And Winston Churchill, I can't, I can't think of the exact quote, uh, that he did. I was trying to Google it, but I can't talk and Google at the same time, so I won't do that. Um, but but it's, it's it's going from from one failure to the next with unbridled enthusiasm. I, I think that's pretty well the quote. 
from Winston Churchill. And uh, if you see a lot of successful people in life, I mean, that they have their own, that they have a mound of failures, right? But it doesn't really deter them. And, and one of those people is uh, the, the person who created Sharper Image. And if I can find his name here, I will tell you, but it, it, it's, um, it, it's from a newsletter that I subscribe to, Hustle. I, I got it over the weekend, and I, I didn't ever really know the, the true story behind Sharper Image, you know, how it was founded, how it progressed, how it did things a little bit different than, than everybody else back in the 60s and 70s and 80s into the 90s before uh, before it fell. But it's, it's a great lesson in, in determination, drive, uh, a, a growth mindset, and entrepreneurship. 100%. And, and thanks for sharing that article with me. I, I, I loved reading it. And I thought it was a, a fantastic case study with you know, my, my initial reactions, right? And this is just off of one article. So of course, there's probably a lot more context that I'm missing here. Um, but just, you know, based off of that article that you sent, here's uh, somebody who started off, and I think it's Richard, uh, Richard Bellinger. Yeah, who, who yeah, yeah. the founder. And, you know, he's had this great idea. Initially, he had this, this, what seems to be a growth mindset in the outcome where uh, you know, an opportunity presented itself for him to really dive into a niche market of these, you know, fancy gadgety type things that, that there seemed to be a big market for in the 80s. And he had tremendous success off of that. And it, it seems like his success uh, caused him to kind of keep going back to what once worked. And, mm-hmm. and even in some of his, um, you know, later efforts that, that there were some kind of flare up successes before the ultimate failure. Um, but even those successes weren't sustainable because they were so based in one niche offering or one product that wasn't diversified. One product. Um, and so it, it seems like, you know, that's a common thing that seems to occur is somebody has this great idea that it evolved and came out of a growth mindset, blew up into a big, uh, you know, success, if you will. Um, and then, because based off of that success, well, here I've proven that this once worked, um, but that's now become a defensive mindset or a fixed mindset where you're not looking to evolve and look at the landscape and 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 do things differently. And some companies, I think, are better positioned and open to be able to pivot versus others are constantly mm-hmm. trying to to stay within the boundaries that they feel are are present. Yeah, he seemed to be a hammer and nail, right? With, with sharper image, it was a one product. He's found that one great product and then drive sales for a long time. But you know, the risk of that is that that one great product, if you don't have that, or if it backfires, like the humidifier, the the silent humidifier, which we'll get to here in just a second. Uh, but it can topple the entire empire that you built. But in college, he's from Little Rock, Arkansas, right? So in college, he sold enough encyclopedias to buy a porch. Do you think you could do that, Richie? Could you sell enough encyclopedias to buy? Today, absolutely before? not, because everyone's going to be like, I have an iPhone. <laughs> I don't need an encyclopedia. Like, I, I'm not a good enough salesperson to win that. To win that. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I'll have faith there. If, if you grew up in the 60s, could you have done it? Possibly. I don't know. I'd like to think that I maybe. Um, I would have tried. I don't yeah, know I don't if it would have or not. I can't, I can't tell you. I mean, I, I like to think that I can work hard, but then I, I read these stories and I'm like, my, I don't know if I would do that. Maybe I'd want to be spending more time with family or something. I don't know. <laughs> but that's a, <laughs> a great question. 
Yeah, so I, he did that. Then he went out to San Francisco, uh, started like a distributorship warehousing for copiers, and that's where he came up with Sharper Image. Uh, that rolled into back back when print uh, mail subscription services. So instead of e-commerce, you had mail order catalogs. Uh, so back in the seventies, he did something a little bit different than anybody else. Differentiated himself and started doing gadgets. And one of the first gadgets he did was uh, a knockoff Timex, really, uh, of a digital watch. I guess digital watches, when they first came out, were so expensive that a lot of runners couldn't afford them, right? So this is this is way back then, right? Like 30, 40 years ago, when, when the, the only thing your watch did was tell you time. It, it didn't, you know, set off bells and whistles every three seconds. And it didn't monitor everything you ever thought uh, about uh, your, your cardiovascular health, right? It just told you what time it was. And, and maybe it had a stopwatch. It was fancy. It was fancy. It had a stopwatch. But he, he, he found somebody at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas who was retailing it for, I think, $35. I think the, the first digital watches from the, the email, uh, from this article in the email, they were $300. Can you imagine paying three hundred dollars for a Timex digital watch? <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, can, you, can you imagine that? The height of technology, right? <laughs> so he found someone thirty-five dollars. He sold it for sixty, right? Set up some ads, you know, some some really slick advertising, and started making money. Started making money. Started uh, going to a consumer electronics show. I. Staying away from the Sonys and Panasonics where everybody was gathered and, and found the dark corners of, of crazy inventors and started getting their products. And he built Sharper Image, which uh, was in every mall, you know, that you could ever think of. It had all these strange gadgets. And by 1979, Valheimer's system of advertising was so successful that he decided to launch his own catalog of high-tech gadgets. Nobody knew they needed, which I, I think is, is, is great. You, you can sell a lot of things that nobody ever knew they needed until they saw it. Which is exactly my thought of going into sharper image stores uh, is I never knew this existed. And, you know, like I would see some yeah. fancy thing. It's like, wow, look at that. <laughs> I, know. I, I want it. I, I just want it. I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And, you know, um, yeah, so yeah, I can completely relate to that. Uh, <laughs> that hits the nail on the head for me. It really does. So, so you had all kinds of, uh, of unique inventions that were their one product wonders that that kept them going through the years until um, until the, the humidifiers, right? The, the the silent humidifiers that Consumer Reports, uh, you know, rated horribly, right? And so they actually emitted um, toxins. And pollution, and he sued Consumer Reports. Of course, he lost. Uh, he he brought along brought along a lot of publicity or a lot of negative publicity about that, and the stock went down to about two dollars a share. Uh, some corporate raiders came in to turn it around. Uh, they they kicked him out of his own company. Uh, he went back the next day or the next time he went to the office after they after he was forced out as, as CEO. And his office doors locked, and his the the, the investor that that, um, that that bought shares and and won the seat and and basically the CEO job was sitting in his office. But it was so, I mean the writing was on the wall way before that happened, right? I mean he 
Oh yeah. It was, it was back, you know, once the nineties hit, there were some recessions and people were like, maybe I don't need to be buying all the gadgets in the world that I don't use. Yeah. The ones that I'd already bought are collecting dust, you know, like as cool as these things were. Um, mm -hmm. So there was already some turmoil that was existing before the air purifier fiasco. And it, it almost seems like that air purifier fiasco was a last ditch effort that was almost completely marketing and they didn't have the the actual product for, for the follow through. And so Consumer Reports called them on it and said, this thing doesn't seem to really do anything. Um, and people were reading that and, and uh, you know, that they got called and, and that was a, a risky play for them that, that blew up. It, it was, you know, and, and there's some other, uh, you know, strange things in here. Uh, I, I guess he's a character, right? I mean, there's, there's no other way to put it, right? He was, he was uh, voted in California as one of the worst CEOs. And, and part of that was, 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 was taking an intense interest in what colors his employees wore and, and clothes. Right. And also uh, what was some of the other things? What, what they could have on their desk, you know, just really micromanaging everything until he went and he got out of that and, and went to the research lab uh, that he funded with profits from to, to create new products, which one of them was the air purifier that kind of changed the company uh, years later. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. It's fascinating to me because you look at it at the very beginning, and he's got this growth mindset where he's looking and looking to grow, looking for new opportunities, open to any kind of shiny opportunity in the periphery of his vision. And then after all this success, all of those things that you're talking about about being a, a terrible boss to work for and and micromanaging and dictating all these things. Those are signs of like that fixed mindset of, of a lot of defensiveness and insecurity yeah. and, and this is the way things have to be and, and that sort of militant uh, management style. And it's just, I wonder what happened, like how did that transition occur? Um, and I'm, I'm curious to, you know, explore, you know, later in this conversation, how, how companies can avoid going down that path and, and keep that growth mindset intact, even after decades and decades of, of a lot of success. I know, right? I, so, so for CEO of a publicly traded company, Dalheimer was unusually involved in minute decisions. His penchant for controlling what color clothes employees could wear, how they decorate their desks, and what type of coffee mugs they used earned him a citation in California Magazine's 1988 Worst Bosses in America list. What kind of so, coffee uh, mugs? <laughs> yeah, what, what kind of coffee mugs, right? I mean, that, that you know, you have this multi, you know, tens of millions of dollars, uh, or maybe hundreds. I, they had over $100 million in sales at that point, right? And you're worried about uh, what, what kind of coffee mugs your, your employees are, are drinking coffee out of. <laughs> you would think that, you know, there'd be other things to worry about. Other than 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 that, but uh, it, it's just strange. It's always fascinating what people put their energy into, you know. Like <laughs> it is, <laughs> it really is. I don't understand it sometimes, but uh, it, it's just a it, it's it's a it's a really cool story. Um, it, it's in hustle. It, it's in um, it, it's in that 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 newsletter. So if if you ever get a chance to to kind of read up on sharper image and, and kind of their origin story, it, it's it, it's interesting. It definitely is. But yeah, you know yeah. what is, else is interesting? What we've been wanting to talk about for a little bit now is the science behind selling. And we have David Hoffeld, the author of this book. 
here with us now. Thank you very much for joining us today, David. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, uh, can you introduce yourself to our, our audience and kind of uh, your origin stories of, of how you became interested in in sales and sales training and, and trying to decipher the science behind how people buy? Yeah. Yeah. David Huffeld. I'm the CEO and chief sales trainer at my firm, Huffeld Group. Uh, we work with some of the most successful companies on the planet, really helping them align how they sell with how our brains form buying decisions. And I guess my origin story years ago, when I first got into sales, I had a master's degree I had achieved before I got into selling. And so I was new to sales and wanted to look for training. And I started looking and everywhere I went, um, it was very anecdotal. I didn't see a lot of training. I, I didn't understand why it worked. They just told me, you know, it worked for ABC company. It's worked for me. Go and do likewise. And I'm like, well, is there any evidence to to show that one way works better than another? And I didn't find any. And so I began just out of desperation um, reading, it's an odd hobby, reading academic journals uh, that I'd uncovered in my master's degree and look at how I can become better. At first, it was at presenting. And then the more I got mm -hmm. into it, the more I began to see how science, we're talking about behavioral science, so cognitive psychology, social psychology, neuroscience, behavioral economics, really had uncovered what creates influence and why some people say yes at the end of the sale and others don't. And I began to apply this science and my results radically improved. And then I got promoted and I would use this science as I trained my sales team and their results went up. And so after a number of different awards and accolades in 2009, I started my own firm. And then in 2016, I wrote uh, my first book, I have a second one on the way, comes out this time next year, but the first one was on the science of selling, where we kind of unveil how a buying decision occurs and the things all of us can do to align how we sell with how our brain forms the decision to buy. That's, that's good stuff. And I was, uh, I've been reading your book and, and lots of great content, and I'm certainly learning uh, a lot of great, great tips uh, through the process of reading. But there seems to be this transition that that occurred uh, where, you know, instead of having all of the focus be 100% on myself, the salesperson and what I can do, what I can do, what, you know, what, how can I get better? How can I do this better? It's me, me, me as a focus. There, there seemed to be a transition that you explored where the focus then changes to the prospect. And how how is their brain forming decisions? What are they thinking? What's what what is their process like? What's the science behind that? Mm -hmm. And how can we speak to them as being the the focal point of the conversation? I'm curious where where in your studies and your research did you make that transition from you know purely what can I do to let's start focusing on on what the prospect is thinking? Yeah, that's a good question. Early in my research, I was looking for tips and tricks. I was looking for little things I could do to get better. And as I got more and more into it, I just became obsessed with it and started reading just ridiculous amounts of scientific research. And I just saw how this uncovered how people buy. And then I, I started to realize from the data that what makes someone successful or not successful in selling, when you boil it down, 
the closer your way of selling is aligned with how the brain forms a buying decision, the more successful you'll be. And what makes someone unsuccessful? When you boil it down to the root cause, the further away your way of selling is from how our brain makes a buying decision, the less successful you'll be. And we all know that when we think about some of the great salespeople we've worked with as a consumer, what do they do? They help guide me through the decision process so I feel good about making it and I'm confident in it. Now, what is the opposite? And we work with salespeople who it's just you walk away shaking your head and going, I don't know what to do. I mean, I, I don't feel confident moving forward. And you think about why is that? That salesperson behaved in a way that made it harder for you to make that buying decision. They got in the way. In other words, they sold in ways that go against how our brains naturally work. And so as I got into the science, I began to see how being buyer-centric, prospect-centric is mission critical because it not only makes you more successful, but it, more importantly, it allows you to really serve those you sell. And I think today, in today's marketplace where there is so much product and service parity, where many companies say their products or services are very similar to their big competitors, um, this matters a lot. So today what I'm seeing is how you sell matters just as much, sometimes even more than what you sell. In other words, if you can help people through the buying process and help them feel good and confident about the decision, that gives you a significant advantage in today's very tumultuous, hyper-competitive marketplace. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's how you sell. It's how you go through that process. And it's the um, how you frame everything that, yeah. that, that you do, right? If you frame it to uh, hitting your sales activity just to, to hit your sales activity or uh, you have a stat in your book, you know, 85% of sales training has really no effect on, on sales performance, right? And I think a lot of people, I would, you know, before I read the book, I would say, well, it's because you, you go through sales training and 85% of your, your sales team isn't going to practice one bit on it. They're just going to go back to their bad habits or whatever habits that they had. They're, they're not really going to practice. There's, I, I think the, uh, the stat out there, uh, as well is, you know, 70 or 80% of salespeople have never even read a sales book, right? So that, that's how I would think, but, but you say it's a fundamental, uh, fundamental, you know, problem with how we train salespeople in general. Yes. Right? So I think there's a, it's a multifaceted problem. I think to your first point, uh, which is a good one, a lot of salespeople, the majority of them don't use the training they get. And then I would say, why should they? Think about, <laughs> here's the presentation to most salespeople. A trainer comes in and they say, do it this way. Why? Because it worked for me and other companies. And the salespeople say, well, my way works for me. So why would I train? Why would I change at all? Right? And so mm -hmm. um, I think that's part of the problem. And which we'll talk about. And then the second part, which is very much related to it, is oftentimes people don't get results from the training because the majority of training, um, to the earlier point made, is very, the basis of it is very seller centric. It's how would I want to be sold to if I were them? Or I'm going to mimic someone else, which is a lot of what sales training is based on. It's mimicry, where the guy down the hall from me, he does well. And so I'm just going to, do whatever he does, right? So I, 
or I do what I want. So it's hard to innovate. It's really the person we're leaving out of the equation in, in that perspective is the buyer, right? We forget about them and it's all how the guy down the hall or how would I like to be sold to. With a science-backed approach, you knock all that out. Number one, it works. It's based on decades and decades, thousands of studies. In my book, I think I cite over 400 different studies, which is literally the tip of the iceberg. Uh, my publisher said, no more. We don't have any more room for citations, right? So I had to limit it. But it's <laughs> a lot more studies than that. Then it compasses. So it works. If you use it, it works. So salespeople love that. Second, because you're explaining why it works, people buy in. People don't come to training looking for one or two gold nuggets, right? And throw the rest away. You're explaining why. And that's been the missing piece regarding a lot of sales training because no one understands the why because it's based on mimicry and we don't understand it. Um, they don't give the why besides it worked for me, it worked for someone else. You do it. Mm -hmm. And then salespeople use that same logic to say, those are the reasons I'm not going to. So a science-backed approach really shows you why you should do it. You get buy-in and it actually works because it's not based on, based on us or our preferences. It's based on how our brains make a buying decision. And when you leverage that, you help people buy. It just gives you a really unique advantage in today's selling environment. So we were just talking previously about uh, fixed mindsets and growth mindsets. Yes. And that seems to be a, a fundamental component to getting people to be open to changing the way that they are operating to include more of these scientifically backed sales techniques. Um, I guess a two-part question or just to get your thoughts, how can people that have or feel like they may be guilty of having that fixed mindset start to transition to more of a growth mindset? And then how can those people that currently do have a growth mindset and are experiencing all kinds of success because of that, guard themselves from falling into a fixed mindset down the road? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a really important question as well, because I see this in every organization I go into. Uh, those who have a growth mindset are far more likely to be successful than those who have a fixed mindset. I mean, it's been scientifically proven now for decades. Uh, there's so much data on this, and you just witness it in every organization I go into, and I'm sure um, you guys as well. So a couple things. Number one, to assess. Uh, we talk about that a little bit in the book, how you can assess if you have a fixed or a growth mindset. In other words, one way to think about it is, is, sale, is your sales ability something either you have or you don't? You just you're born with it, or is it something you can develop over time? Is it more like a muscle that you continually develop? People that have a fixed mindset, they have a hard time with training or coaching because they take it personally because they believe their sales abilities are something that they either have or they don't. And so when you go to training or coaching and you say you need to improve, they're saying you're, you're saying I don't have it, and they push back. People with a growth mindset look at their abilities like a muscle they have to continually develop that with hard work and good training, we can all get better. And that gives them a significant advantage in how successful they become. It's very difficult to become and remain successful today with a fixed mindset. A growth mindset is mission critical. So whether you say, okay, I kind of have a fixed mindset or a hybrid of a fixed and growth or a growth, all of us should focus on how we can get a little bit better, a little stronger in our growth mindset. 
couple of real practical things we can do. Uh, number one is celebrate growth. One way to think about it is this. If you're a sales professional, if you hit your number for the year, but you don't grow at all, you don't improve, but you do hit your number, did you have a successful year? I would say no. I would say it's great you hit your number, but in today's hyper-competitive marketplace, if you're not moving forward, you're going to fall behind. So growth is now something we all must be engaged in. So you want to make it a priority. We want to celebrate growth, right? And so you want to, you want to think about that. Some salespeople I know, one of the things they do is they get together with a colleague, and they used to do it for breakfast once a week. Now they do it on a Zoom call for half an hour. And all they talk about is, what did you learn over the last week? That's it. So they focus on, what am I learning, right? And to celebrate that growth at the end of every day, what have I learned? When you win a sale, what did I learn from that? When I lose a sale, what can I learn from that? So you're always in this state of learning. And when organizations, which there's a number of examples of, and people begin to embrace a growth mindset, it just supercharges your results. You get better much faster, and you continually get better. Someone with a fixed mindset has a self-imposed ceiling they put on themselves, right? They only get better up to a certain point, and then they stop. Whereas a growth mindset, you're getting better and better week after week, month after month, year after year. And that, again, sets you up for tremendous long-term lasting success, and it makes such a difference. So embracing a growth mindset, really celebrating growth and cultivating it, making it part of how you think about success is absolutely mission critical. I, I think you see that with a, with a lot of successful people, that they're always growing, you know, yep. they're always growing, always challenging themselves. And a lot of fixed mindset people say, oh, don't you have enough? Haven't you achieved enough? But if you're not growing, then you, you feel let down. By, by yourself or, or, you know, by your results. And that's one of the things that, that drives you is to always get better. So no matter how good you are at something, you're always trying to achieve a little bit, little bit more. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about buying and, and, and the buyer. And, you know, all sales is, is influencing, right? Persuasion and influencing, right? That, that sells. It's been around since the, the beginning of time. And that's, really where the, the science comes in about uh, about how we buy you know how we buy you talk about peripheral and central messages can you uh, explain that a little bit more david yeah so some really powerful science that illuminates well, how does the buying process happen what the data mm -hmm. shows conclusively decades of research studies now have proven this is that when our brains form a buying decision, we use two ways of being influenced. The first one is what's called the peripheral route. These are kind of the rules of influence. They govern perception. And they're present every time you and I are in a selling situation. How we perceive things is governed by this peripheral route. Um, one quick example of this would be uh, social proof. Social proof is an idea that's been studied for over 100 years scientifically. And it's one of our earliest principles that scientists discovered. And what it says is we connect the persuasiveness of an idea with how other people respond to it. Right? It's why we all naturally are drawn to best-selling books or blockbuster movies or businesses with a lot of satisfied customers. 
because social proof helps us to perceive uh, doing an action or buying something as less risky. So it de-risks a situation, which is really impactful. And you can leverage that by saying things as simple as our most popular option, or when a lot of people are in your position, one thing they consider is, right, it's just connecting the idea with how others are responding to it. So that's just one of the many principles that scientists have uncovered. Some of these have actually won Nobel Prizes. I mean, they're a big deal mm. that they govern perception in that peripheral route. Well, there's another route of influence that's just as impactful, sometimes even more impactful, and that is how we actually form the buying decision. In other words, the mental steps our brains go through. And what's really been interesting there is back 50, 60 years ago, a number of breakthrough studies found that the best way to get someone to do something big, make a big commitment, is to first get them to commit to doing something small that's aligned with the larger decision. So that set off a, a fury of scientific studies over the next few decades. And what we eventually identified was that the buying decision is made of certain incremental commitments. And this was a big takeaway for me uh, relatively early in my research, where I found that if certain commitments were not made during the sale, the buying decision never happened. And if all of these commitments were made during the sale, the buying decision, if I'm talking to a qualified buyer who has the means and authority to buy, they happen. Mm -hmm. And so these buying this buying decision, the commitments are the building blocks of it. And so that's that central route. It's what our potential customers are thinking through and committing to or not committing to that creates the sale. So those routes together describe how a buying process occurs. And though it may sound complicated, once you unpack it and understand it, it's incredibly simple, but it reveals what should you be doing during the sale. You should be trying to guide your potential clients through certain commitments and using that peripheral route, those little rules to help influence them so they feel good about making them. And when you can do that, success is virtually guaranteed because that is what creates success or failure in the sale. It's incredibly simple, but very powerful. And it gives us a framework. How should we sell? How do we align how we sell with how buyers buy? It describes exactly what you and I can do immediately to do that. That's fantastic. And, and I always think about, you know, building momentum with sales. And it, yeah. it seems like, uh, you know, what you're describing with all these small commitments, like you're getting engagement, that engagement is leading to momentum. Uh, people are, are spending time thinking about what you're what you have to offer in your product. They're responding, they're answering phone calls, and you're continuing to build a relationship through that process. And, and uh, you know, work towards that sale. And it, it, that also seems to me, at least, to feel like things don't end with the sale, right? That is that is just one step in how that relationship is built and is ongoing. Uh, and so I, and I think you had some, some things in your book to say about that, about, you know, towards the end of the sale, setting up the rest of your team for success post-sale. And I, I thought you might have some thoughts there, too. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly right. So this way of selling really inspires confidence in your buyer. And it really allows you then if you bring others into the sale or if repeat business is a major part of your success, meaning we don't just want to sell customers once, 
We want to do it repeatedly. This sets you up for that as well. So it's very much a buyer-centric way of selling that everything is focused on them. How do I really meet their needs? And it also keeps us from falling into some unhealthy or unethical practices as well. Um, that's something I'm really focusing on in my next book. And we're having a whole chapter on selling with integrity. And so one thing people often say is, well, how do I make sure that I don't, you know, this seems powerful. Couldn't it be used for um, uh, less than ethical purposes? And this approach actually helps you make sure you don't fall into manipulative behaviors. Why? Because usually when that happens is when people are focusing on them. How do I get this person to do something that benefits me? And in real influence, everyone wins. There shouldn't be any loser. Also, there was a really interesting study that looked at this. Looked at when do salespeople fall into unethical behaviors? And what can you do to prevent it? And one of the things they found that worked better than anything else that kept salespeople from falling into unethical behaviors was the continual reminder to focus on meeting the needs of your buyer. Meaning when you're focused on really serving someone, it takes the attention off of you and puts it on, how can I really help them? Whereas when you get into some of these seller-centric practices, it really starts to foster kind of this area that who matters? Well, me. Everything in the sale is about me, and that's not what we want. And it can lead people down when certain circumstances hit, uh, lead them to, to more unethical practices that we don't want and people don't want either. None of us want to be that stereotypical salesperson from the 1970s that was manipulating people. None of us want to be like that. And the more we can focus on our buyer, what the studies show, it actually protects us from doing that. And to your point, it creates long-term loyalty. People like being sold to in this way. Why? Because it's about them. When do people, what do they not like about sales practices? When it's about the seller when you're trying to cram things down my throat, when you really don't care about my needs. You just want to get me to sign uh, an agreement. And so this approach really serves our customers. And as a result of that, you benefit as well. But it's a byproduct. You're not the focus of the sale. The customer is. And that sets you up for long-term success. So it's part of that integrity, uh, keeping ethical, putting the focus on the buyers. Mm -hmm. Is that the, the questioning part, right? Is that, is that the, the, the nature of, of asking questions? Ask, asking questions and listening, you're putting the focus on the buyer. Uh, you're concerned about the buyer, right? And it kind of limits uh, an ethical behavior if you're, if you're selling in, in, in that way, right? I think it's spot on. That's one of the many things that we can do. In other words, we don't want to present our product and service until we know how we can customize the presentation to mm -hmm. really show that it's going to meet our buyer's needs. And the opposite of that is true as well. If you find out that what the buyer needs is not something you sell, then ethically, I say you inject because real influence betters the position of everyone involved. So what's a real simple way to tell if something is manipulative or if it's influence? Influence is good. A manipulation is not. Influence, everyone, everyone's position gets better. In manipulation, my position gets better. Yours doesn't. So I'm using you in a way that hurts you 
and helps me. Mm -hmm. That's always manipulative. It's always unethical. And in today's transparent world, it doesn't work in the short term. It doesn't work in the long term. It flat out doesn't work. So by understanding what our buyers needs, asking those questions, doing a good discovery, and then really customizing our presentation to show them how we can meet their needs, it not only protects, protects us from ever getting into anything unethical, but it equips us to be able to really serve them and help them realize this. Uh, and this is a big problem. A lot of times in sales, salespeople will say to me, you know, my what I offer can really help some of the people I'm selling to, but they still say no. Yeah, because they don't see that, right? They don't know mm -hmm. what you know. So you want to present in a way that helps them realize the value you can give them. And that's a lot of, we talk about presentation of value, which is a major issue a lot of salespeople struggle with. Mm -hmm. They're presenting a lot of value. Their clients aren't perceiving the value they're presenting. And that's a major problem. And questions can be helpful even with that. So if you present mm -hmm. a lot of a big value proposition, don't just let it sit out there hoping they understood it. Ask them to weigh in on it, right? Ask them a question that helps them think through and verbally respond to the value you're saying. So questions are really impactful, not only at the beginning of the sale during that discovery, but throughout the entire thing. And when you yeah. can use questions well, something we talk about in the book, you have a whole chapter on it, it's incredibly impactful. It's a game changer. Seems like empathy is a, a word that keeps coming to mind for me and, and being empathetic and, and putting yourself into uh, you know, your prospect shoes and considering them as the hero of the story and, 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 and trying to build something you know, that it's, it's not a zero-sum game. Like, like everybody can profit. And the, the ideal sale is one that is going to be a scenario where all parties are benefiting. Um, and, you know, with, with a lot of our audience being in freight and freight kind of fluctuating and, you know, one, you know, one year, the market may be really good for, for, for carriers the next year, it may be really good for shippers. Um, you know, it can be, it can feel a little bit more like a zero sum game at times where, you know, we were paying way too much last year. Now the market's in our favor and we want to pay less and so forth. So, um, I, I thought you might have some insight on, on how parties can, on both sides can start building trust and building empathy and creating and maybe even using transparency and data or just different different ways to help uh, make that process uh, a healthier overall environment going forward. Yeah, a number of things we can do there. One is when we really try to understand someone's perspective. And so what I would say is, it's fine if you imagine what it'd be like if I was you, but much better is, how do I just understand your perspective? How do I take me out of it at all, right? Because I have a perspective, you have a perspective, they're probably gonna be radically different because of upbringing, past experiences, belief systems, and so on. So I really wanna understand your perspective. So we call it perspective taking. And that helps in all the things that you ask in the question. If I can really understand your perspective, that informs me how I can present myself, my product, my service, my company, or a situation, how do I really do that? And I think when people feel like you're genuinely trying to understand where they're coming from and you're making it easy for them to see value or when you explain your argument, right? Or why we're gonna charge more prices, you're still bringing in their perspective. So they always feel understood. 
they always feel like you're not cramming anything down my throat, but you really understand where I'm at and my struggles, what I want to achieve, what my goals are in the negotiation. Right? Really understanding that can really help me as I frame my approach to do so in a way that'll be you know, most receptive to. I'll give you one quick example. One of my favorite studies uh, that I've come across, I'm putting into my new book, uh, came out just a couple of years ago after the science of selling came out, um, when it was looking at political arguments and looking at some of the most polarizing topics in politics in the Journal of uh, Social Psychology. They looked at this and they said, how can we make people more receptive to arguments that are completely opposite of them? And what they found was when you try to argue your position, it didn't work. People just butt heads. And of course, no one no one's open to hearing or, or thinking about change. What did work alarmingly well, the research shows, is when you understood the person you were trying to persuade, their position, even though it was con different than your own, and you integrated part of that, right, into um, their position. So for example, uh, they looked at one, one uh, experiment where they looked at the polarizing topic of same-sex marriage. And they found that people who were um, in favor of same-sex marriage, that they were more opening to at least having a dialogue and having a productive dialogue and listening um, when you looked at it through the lens, when they framed it through fairness, which is a, a, a big uh, value that they hold. They saw the opposite as well, that when you looked at those who were against same-sex marriage, but you frame your argument in favor of it by talking about how many same-sex couples are loyal, patriotic Americans, that people were more open to a dialogue and sometimes even moving on their position because now they were listening, right? So the more you can understand someone's perspective and integrate that into your presentation, the more effective you'll be and the more they feel heard and the more open they are to collaborating with you and giving some ground because they feel like, okay, you understand where I'm at, you're being respectful, and you're not trying to, again, cram something down my throat that I don't want. You're trying to really work with me and my situation. And when you do that, again, everyone wins. It, that's a, it's really good talent and really good skill set to, to learn, no matter if you're in, well, we're all in sales, whether we like it or not. It's just part of life. And we have come down on, on the final time. We have run out of time, unfortunately, because there is one question that I want to ask you. So I'll have you on if you want to come back on our show uh, soon, definitely, because predictable, predictable irrationality yeah. is, is something that I could spend 20 minutes talking about just by itself, because I'm fascinated by it. Uh, but, but great conversation. And, and David, will, you know, certainly come back and, and join us because I, I want to have like a 30 minute conversation just Let's about that one Absolutely. tiny Love thing. To. Definitely. So uh, how does our audience uh, reach out, learn more about you? And I'm about to give away your book here in, in just a second. But um, real quickly, um, how do they reach out and, and learn more? Yeah, the best way is through our website, Huffeld, H-O-F-F-E-L-D group.com. There's all kind of resources there uh, you can look at at no cost, um, articles, white papers, blog, videos, podcasts. Check it out. And of course, we're on social media. We also have a popular podcast on uh, any of the places that you listen to podcasts. So check us out. 
and uh, learn more about how to leverage science to more effectively sell. Thank you very much again for, for dropping by, David. And, uh, and again, we will have you on very soon. So I'll okay. reach out and, and book that. Uh, but thank you again. It's been a great My conversation. Pleasure. So, Richie, give me a, a, a number between 1 and 117. Oh, let's go with uh, 93. 93. Well, let's go with uh, 94 because they won that one. David Brown. So, David Brown, I'll send you out a copy of The Science of Selling. Uh, it's, it's a great book. It's a it's a great book, and um, and and I, I really had an enjoyable time reading it. How about you, Richie? Yeah, over it was, the weekend, it was fantastic. And I could have, to your point, I could have been on this conversation for another hour. I mean, uh, so much content to get to dive into, and and science just impacts everything, right? I mean, there, there's a scientific uh, study and approach for all for all the various mm-hmm. components of sales, and uh, yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. It really is, and and so this predictable irrationality is. I've been fascinated fascinated with it for quite a while, and it's it's kind of uh, analogous. The best analogy I have is that the more you hammer on home an ROI, and you're just like this ROI just makes sense. How can you not see it? The the further away the cell gets, sometimes because it's not really about the logical reason. It is about irrationality, but it's very predictable. And once you can bring emotions into the logic, cells uh, becomes much, much easier. And that's one of the things that, uh, again, it fascinates me. I want to talk to, uh, to David a little bit more about it. Um, coming sure. up next week, um, you know, on Wednesday, April 7th, right? We're coming into a new month, a new quarter. Uh, but we have the Enterprise Fleet Summit, which will uh, be tailored around technology and operations and uh, everything that has to do with large fleet management. And part of that is driver recruiting and driver hiring, which is a very important part, part of operations. So we'll be doing that on April 7th. It'll be a full day of virtual event. You can go to live.freewaves.com and sign up for that. And uh, as always, it's free registration. And you can see the agenda is coming out tomorrow, uh, live.freightwaves.com. And after that, we have on Earth Day, April 22nd, we have Net Zero Carbon Summit. And it's all uh, about sustainability. It's about alternative fuels. Uh, We have a great agenda coming out on on that as well. So join us for that. You can go uh, sign up for that right now. Again, at live.freightwaves.com. But we have great virtual events coming up. And uh, next week, uh, we have uh, Zoom, or Surge, I'm sorry, Surge Transportation uh, coming in. Uh, Omar will be with us. And Richie, if you want to join me again for next week, here's the invitation. I'd be honored. I'd be honored, Kevin. Perfect. Perfect. Well, that wraps it up for this. Yeah, that wraps it up for this. And have a great week. I got friends only wanna talk business. I got expensive, cause when is expensive? I got expensive, cause when is expensive? I've been getting out of work. I've been shutting down the stars.